Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that offers you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find information about the Creative Writers Toolbelt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from the first 100 episodes of the podcast into one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writers Toolbelt and that it's helpful to you on your writing journey. Hello and welcome to episode 127 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. In this episode, I want to bring you the second half of a conversation I had recently with novel editor Ellen Brock. But first, if you've listened to the last episode, you might recall that I mentioned the Indie Novelist Writers Summit. Now, this is an online event for anyone who wants to get expert advice on the craft of fiction writing and also on the skills and techniques you need to bring your work to publication. This summit has been organised and run by my friend, Brian Burney, and it will feature 30 international speakers, including the novelist and writing coach C.S. Lakin, the international award-winning and best-selling writer James Scott Bell, the wonderful indie writer and guru Joanna Penn, who's been a guest on my podcast, and also yours truly, talking about developing compelling characters for your work. The summit will run from the 17th to the 21st of October, and you can sign up now for a free pass or to get lifetime access to teaching from all of those speakers, special deals and discounts on a range of products for writers and additional exclusive bonuses, sign up now to the Premium Pass. And you can find out more and sign up for the Indie Novelist Writers Summit by going to my website, andrewjchamberlain.com and clicking on the link from there or by dropping me a line at andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com. Now, the link you use from my website is an affiliate link. And so that means I will receive some commission if you sign up using that link. But it won't cost you any more than getting access to the summit any other way. So if you're interested, just go to andrewjchamberlain.com and click through to the Indie Novelist Writers Summit from there. So back to this episode, which is the second half of my conversation with professional freelance editor Ellen Brock. Some of you may know Ellen from her novel bootcamp event and her series of videos on YouTube. As I said in my introduction to the first part of this conversation, what I love about Ellen's approach is that she has a real heart for helping people who want to develop their skills in the craft of writing. And she has developed a wide range of resources that anyone can tap into for free to understand the best practices and also learn how to practically apply them. And this is one of the many reasons why I was particularly pleased to have Ellen as a guest on the show. In this part of the conversation, we talk about making the right choice for the point of view of our work, how to create the ideal query letter and how to utilize the resources that Ellen has made available. I really enjoyed my conversation with Ellen. I learned a bunch of new things to help me with my work. I hope you find it useful too. Here's the second half of that interview. What I want to move on to next then is it's the thing that I personally really struggle with. And it's the thing that I've had a little bit of email exchange with you about, and that is point of view. I wondered if we could start by you just giving us perhaps one or two things that we should think about if I'm either going to write in first person point of view or third person limited in each of those two instances. What are the things that as a writer, I really need to bear in mind when I'm doing that? My first recommendation is almost always to pick the one that you like better, because okay. if you if you feel more comfortable it's definitely going to show in the writing. And if you feel like you're faking to write in first or you're sort of faking to write in third, it's you're going to have problems and you're going to spend a lot more time on editing. A lot of people have asked um, with marketability, is it more marketable to write in first mm. or third? It really mm. doesn't matter. 
And okay. it's, it's very rare that it's going to make any sort of impact on the marketability. So I would say, firstly, pick the one that you feel more comfortable with using. If you feel comfortable using both, typically your first person is going to be a little bit more immediate. The emotions are going to be a little bit rawer. It can sometimes be helpful if you want to have something that's very immersive in the experience of the character. So if you want the reader to really understand the thought processes and the emotions and that element is really important to the novel, then first person can be really helpful. Third person can be helpful if the descriptions are maybe a little bit more complicated and maybe it's easier to not use the direct voice of the character to convey things or to explain what's going on or to explain, um, you know, fantasy elements or sci-fi elements. Sometimes that can get clunky in first person. Some people are really good at writing that in first person, but I find like more often than not, it can get a little clunky. But I think really if you, if you want to write a very close third person, it's not going to be dramatically different from first person. Mm. So I tend to sort of recommend people just go with what they prefer. Okay. Now, just moving on from that to omniscient third-person point of view. So this is this is a bit of a personal bugbear for me. I've heard a lot of people talking about the problems with head-hopping and the problems where point of view goes wrong and and the, the kind right. of confusion that that can cause in the reader's mind and the, and, and the reasons why that is a bad thing. But there is omniscient third-person point of view, which I tend to think of as doing this stuff the right way. I would be really interested to hear your perceptions and your your kind of wisdom on doing on how to get that right how to get how to do omniscient right uh, perhaps particularly if you've got an ensemble cast the main thing that you want to work on is managing the narrative distance so you want the reader to always know whether an observation or an opinion is coming from the narrator or the character and even if you have a narrator that doesn't have a distinct personality and this is sometimes called like an invisible narrator hmm you can still inadvertently give the impression that the narrator has an opinion if you're not being clear about when you're in the character's opinion, voice, introspection, etc. It it can lead to confusion. It can also just be really sloppy and difficult to follow. So trying to think of like a quick example. So say you were writing something in Omniscient like... um, Tom didn't know it yet, but something terrible was going to happen. And he stubbed his toe. What a terrible day. The last sentence, what a terrible day, leaves the reader unsure whose opinion is being described. Is Tom the one who thinks it's a terrible day? Does the narrator think it's a terrible day? That's where you're really going to run into trouble with omniscient. And so you want to make sure that you have very clear transitions into the character's opinions or thoughts so that you're making it very obvious to the reader when you're describing the character's feelings. So you could fix that by saying something like, um, Tom couldn't understand why something like this would happen to him. What a terrible day. And at that point, the reader is like, okay, this is Tom's opinion. It's pretty obvious that it's Tom's opinion. So that's mainly where you're going to run into trouble with omniscient is when you're not being clear for the reader about whose opinion or whose thoughts or emotions are being described. Head hopping is often caused by the writer fully jumping into the perspective of different characters. So omniscient isn't necessarily going into the perspective of different characters. The omniscient narrator just has the ability to describe the thoughts and feelings of the other characters. 
So when you jump into the voice of one character and then you jump into the voice of a different character, it's very, very disorienting. Uh, I often say that it's like you're watching a TV show and you're just the, the channel just keeps changing and your attention is just mm. constantly pulled to a different mm. situation and a different situation. Part of this comes down to scene structure in terms of why this is a problem, because the character who has the goal and the conflict in the scene is the one that you want to mostly focus on in the scene. And if you keep pulling the reader's attention to different characters, it gets harder and harder to follow the scene and to stay engaged emotionally with, mm. with what's going on. Mm. Most modern advice would say, even if you're writing an omniscient, that you should still stick to only conveying the thoughts and feelings of one character per scene. This isn't a rule that you have to follow, but it's, it's becoming increasingly uncommon to see omniscient narrators that focus on a bunch of different characters feelings and opinions within a single scene and again this mostly has to do with scene structure and preventing the reader from getting disoriented or confused about whose opinion is whose and who feels what yeah if you think about it sort of like a camera in a film if the camera is just continuously cutting to different areas of the scene say like so if you have like a battle and you're just jumping 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 it can be really, really hard to follow the action at that point and to feel like you have a streamlined sense of what's occurring. And often it would be preferable to just stick to one character's perspective of what's occurring for the purpose of creating a more streamlined, clearer trajectory of events. Okay. Uh, so it, it sounds to me as if the real problem or the challenge for writers within all this is, or the thing to avoid, I suppose, is is that you don't want to confuse the reader. You don't want the reader to end up not focusing on the story because they can't work out who's talking and they're confused and then they just come out of they come out of the story and it's and you might lose them completely anyway they they've lost track somewhere of what's going on right and even beyond just losing track it it can be uh distancing to not get to spend a lot of time with the same character Mm. so it can sometimes be a barrier to investment so the reader can't really emotionally invest in a character if you're constantly pulling them away to focus on what's going on elsewhere or to focus on how another character feels Uh, in a lot of ways it can just come across as sloppy So it's important if you do want to make transitions like that between different characters, focusing on different characters, that there really be a very good reason for why you want to do that. Yeah. In most stories, it's going to strengthen the scenes to not go into a lot of different characters, thoughts and feelings. I hesitate to to make any absolute statements about things because there are always books that do things and it works totally fine, even though it's generally advised against. So, so it's really hard to say with omniscient, any kind of absolute rules for how it can work. And then in romance, head hopping is going to be a lot more common where you're going to jump between the male and female protagonist. That's pretty common. It's not necessarily expected, but it's definitely not looked down upon like it is in most genres. Okay, so that makes that makes sense. I mean, it, I think it, it's like a lot of writing advice. There is no absolute rule, but if something works ninety five percent of the time, or it's a good idea ninety five percent of the time, then it's probably worth paying close attention to it, isn't it? Really, is. I mean, some people can break the rules, but generally, I mean, for me, I'm thinking generally speaking, I just need to stick to one point of view per scene, whatever I'm writing. That, that I can't. Right. I just don't. If I stray outside that then I am most likely going to screw it up. It's going to go wrong somewhere. 
Right, most likely, yeah. But there's definitely situations where theoretically it could be very helpful to do that, but it's it's not going to be 98% of, of situations. Okay. I want to come back to something that you said a little bit earlier because I want to move on now to, to thinking about what a writer thinks they're writing and what the writer thinks they're creating and what actually is ending up on the page and in the reader's mind. So you referred to the fact that, that writers obviously often fail to bridge the gap. I think that was the phrase you used earlier on. Yes. Um, and I yeah. wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you mean by that and give us some ideas about how we can safeguard against it or how we can avoid that happening. Yeah. So I think this is something that just gets easier with time. And it's definitely helpful if you can get feedback from a critique group or a beta reader, because they'll be able to to point out for you where you're not conveying things clearly. Sometimes you still won't you still won't 100% know that they're not interpreting things the way that you want them to. So it can even be helpful to ask, how do you interpret this scene? Or what do you think this character is feeling? Or what do you think this character wants, etc.? To ask questions, even if you think it's completely obvious, sometimes beta readers aren't going to necessarily be able to point that out for you without prompting. But it can it can definitely be helpful in figuring out those areas. So the kinds of things I'm talking about is so maybe you have a character who is fidgeting a lot in a scene and you're trying to convey that they're nervous, but it's actually coming across like they're hiding something or like they're deceiving someone and you didn't want that at all. And it completely ruins the entire purpose of sure. the scene from your perspective. Sure. So that would be a small example. A, in a bigger sense, you can have characters that are coming across completely differently across the entire novel. So this is often relating to the introspection or how the character is expressing their feelings or what they're trying to achieve in, an, in a novel. So sometimes a character can come across unintentionally judgmental or malicious or whiny or all kinds of things. And mm. honestly, it's really difficult to see that in your own writing. I think that's why some of the most common writing advice that you're going to get from anyone is to put your book away for a month or two months or three months. And that's entirely with the hopes that when you bring it back up again and you look at it again, that you're going to be able to see it with fresh eyes and see what's actually on the page and not what you intended. Whether or not yeah. that works, I think, is questionable. I think that sometimes you're just permanently too close to a work to ever see it the way that a reader sees it. But that's where getting feedback from somebody else is going to really, really help you to be able to find those areas where you're just not conveying things clearly. And is there a sense in which, as well, kind of linked to that, writers can sometimes visualise a scene, but they haven't described it sufficiently, so people don't really know where characters are. Writers assume they do, uh, or writers assume they know that a character has moved and they haven't. So there's almost a kind of, if you imagine a kind of in your mind as a writer, the, the staging of your scene, you can sometimes not give yeah. enough information for the reader to keep up with that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That's another common problem a movement can get really really confusing sometimes and often over describing movement can actually make it more confusing which is interesting focusing a lot on nuanced movement can be really hard for the reader to visualize so if i'm describing you know you know my wrist is bending and my fingers are bending and then all the, and my arm is moving and i'm and you're just like what is happening <laughs> and it can be a lot simpler to just say 
you know, I grabbed something or I punched yeah. someone. Like sometimes just going for the simpler option is going to be clearer. And sometimes in an attempt to get the reader to see what you're seeing in your mind, it's actually harder because the more you're describing it, sometimes you're creating an overwhelming level of detail that can't even really be clearly processed or is worded in a way that's just odd or difficult to understand. So there's definitely a balance there where you don't want to go too far into your descriptions, but you want to give enough that the reader has a clear sense of what's going on and where everybody is. It's definitely a tricky element of writing. And I and I do see with the clients that I've worked with, it just gets easier with time. It, it gets yeah. easier fairly rapidly if you get feedback. Okay. Coming back now to thinking about the general skills of, of writing so just getting a narrative right just getting it clear or sharp or whatever how can writers improve just their general writing style and, and still retain their voice what are the kind of things that they need to do yeah we, we touched on a little bit uh with the writing rules not getting too hung up on them and i think when polishing up your writing you can sometimes run into problems if you try to apply rules 100 percent because mm. there's no especially on a line by line level, you're really not going to get 100% compliance with any rules in any book. So if you open up any book, you're going to see adverbs, even though you might find advice all (laughs) over the place that says cut out adverbs. And if you open any novel on the planet, you're going to see a ton of adverbs. So it's a lot of the time the advice can be applied too much. And I don't know, it kind of makes everyone's voice sound too flat or too much the same, or you can feel like you're losing what's unique about your voice. So yeah, Adverbs are a good example. Filtering is another example where you might say that um, the character heard something instead of just describing the sound or the character tasted something instead of just describing the taste. There's there's very, very good reasons to avoid filtering, but it's not something where you can never, ever, ever do it, not even once in your entire novel. There are times where you just need to use your own judgment about what makes sense in terms of should you use an adverb, should you use filtering. And so I think really it's, understanding why the rules are the way that they are. Why do people recommend that you not use adverbs? Why is filtering considered to be a bad thing? Then you can look at it and say, okay, well, is this a situation where that rule is relevant? And it's not always going to be relevant and you're not always going to be able to apply every rule hundred percent. And if you do, I, I think that's where you're going to run into issues with losing your voice in the mm. process of mm. sharpening things up. Okay. Now, I want to move on to uh, another subject that writers get really stressed about, and that is the query letter. Uh, so I wondered if you could uh, talk to us a little bit about the, what the query letter is, first of all. Some, some people listening to this might not even have ever heard of a query letter. And your advice on how to present a good query letter. Sure. So I actually do have a video series on this. I just did a two-part series about four weeks ago so if you want to check that out it is on my youtube channel and i do give sort of a formula that you can use for that um so basically with the query letter what it is is a proposal to an agent or to a publisher where you're saying this is who i am this is what my book is like and do you want to see more do you want to see a partial or a full manuscript are you interested in perhaps pursuing a professional relationship And at that point, you'll either get a rejection or an acceptance, in which case they're going to either ask you for a partial of your manuscript, so maybe 50 or 100 pages, or they're going to ask you for the full manuscript. A lot of the time, agents just don't respond at all. So there's also a no response means no policy for the majority of agents. So you might just never hear back. Hmm. Um, 
So, yeah, so really with the query letters, if you're getting a response rate of maybe one in 10, you're doing all right because you're really not going to hear back a whole lot, um, especially if you're querying a lot of agents. Um, you're not going to hear back from a lot of them or you're going to get a form rejection, which is basically the same thing as not hearing back. Um, so when you're working on your query letter, you want to obviously introduce your book, in which case you definitely want to have the genre of your book and the age group of your book, the word count, and then you might introduce some other elements if you feel like it's important. So for example, you might want to mention if you have a diverse cast or if you hit on any particular themes that you think might be relevant because mm -hmm. those things can be interesting to an agent or the agent might find those things important for marketability or for the kinds of books that they're interested in promoting at the moment. So you might want to mention something else like that. Um, and then you're going to have your biography and the biography can be, it can be a little bit tricky. Some agents really don't care too much if you include the biography, if you don't have any credits. So if you don't really have any publications, you don't have a degree that's relevant to writing or that's relevant to the subject of your novel, the agent may not care for you to include a biography at all. But there are some agents who like the biography no matter what. But the key is to keep it really, really, really short. Hmm. You don't want to go on and on and on in your biography. So if you don't have any credits, you might just say something simple about your where you live and your job or just leave off the biography. I, I'm, I tend to be a fan of just leaving off the biography entirely if you don't have credits because I think it takes up visual space in the query. Yeah. And that's the other big advice that I have is just keep it short in general. The shorter is the better for the vast majority of queries. So usually shooting for between like 150 to 250 words, the entire query letter is going to be your best bet. Okay. Um, one of the biggest mistakes is just going on and on and on in the query, especially with your plot description. You want to keep it exciting and tight and you don't want it to just go on and on because you really... You can think about it similar to the back cover of a book. You want to just entice the the agent to want to keep reading and to want to know what happens next, but you don't want to give away a bunch of information about the book and you don't want to drag on so long that it becomes unengaging or so they lose interest. Okay. There's one other thing that you mentioned earlier on that I do want to come back to, which is to do with characters. Now, right at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned... Anne of Green Gables as a book that you read so much that you had to kind of mend the book because you'd worn it yeah. out. And it was very interesting that you talked about how the protagonist appealed to you because she had certain characteristics which you have as as well. And I wonder right. if you could, just abstracting that into a principle that writers can use, can we even as writers create features in our protagonist that, are going, that people are going to identify with or that we hope people will identify with? Yeah, I think... People can really identify with almost any kind of goal or any kind of like character if you understand their motivations. So I tend to say focus on the motivation, conveying the motivation, the emotional driving force for that character. Because if we understand what the character wants to achieve emotionally, so maybe that could be security or love or acceptance, mm. we're going to be much more engaged with them. And I think everybody can relate to that. When it comes to character traits, obviously people are really diverse, so it's going to be really difficult yes, to yeah. to have character traits that a lot of people are going to say, oh, that character is just like me. That's not going to happen too much. Maybe it would happen with a diverse cast. So if you have like Harry Potter, someone could easily say some character in that is just like me, but there's so many characters. So, um, But if you're just talking about your protagonist, 
I, I think the best way to create a relatable character is to be clear about what emotional need are they trying to satisfy because mm. we can really connect with that yeah. on a deeper level. Yeah. And I guess thinking about what, what you've just said there, I think you could probably say that the, the things that people really want, there's only there's only like two or three or four things that actually people really do want it, perhaps even less than that in life. So if, if you like, you know, people do, and you mentioned them, you know, people want to love and be loved and they want to be fulfilled in what they do. Perhaps they want, maybe they want revenge. I don't know. Maybe there's not loads of these things, is there? There's only a few things that deeply yeah, people definitely. get passionate about. Yeah, definitely. I, if you look at most novels, acceptance and love and security, maybe fulfillment, like you mentioned, career fulfillment, mm. it's going to cover that's going to cover a good chunk of your novels. And uh, yeah, revenge can be one. And I think revenge may be a cover for for another emotional need, perhaps. Yeah. But yeah, um, but yeah, there's not a ton. There's not a ton. And you can almost look at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and kind of give your yeah. character some some emotional struggles based on that. Because, yeah, we all really want the same thing. So making a character that's relatable, even... You can even have characters that are unlikable, but we can say we understand emotionally what they're looking for. So we can connect to that, even though maybe they're not nice people or they go about things in a way that we wouldn't want to go about them. Okay, so I want to move on now and talk about your work and some of the resources that you make available to people to help themselves to improve the craft. And I know there's a variety of things that you do. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what's out there that people can tap into Yeah, so I've tried really hard to make resources available that I think cover the basic things that writers need to know so that they can kind of have a strong foundation for their work. So I have a YouTube channel. It's just my name, Ellen Brock. And if you search my name, it'll come up really easily. And I on my YouTube channel, I've really covered a lot of basic subjects like story structure and scene structure and characterization and the Mm. character arc and all of those types of things. And um, I know that not everybody can afford to have editing services or coaching services. And so I wanted to put some things out there that can help writers to get that strong foundation in a way that, you know, is easy and free and hopefully will give you a leg up in the competition. When you're going to query, you'll be able to stand out more because just having those basics down is really going to make a huge difference. I do a few events yearly. I have I usually do uh, a mentoring event. Uh, the last couple years I've done with RevPid or Revise and Resubmit where I will take about 100 queries. And I do this with about, um, I think there were 10, 11 other editors that did this. And we all took query letters and then we picked someone to work with for free. So I do that about once a year and that lasts like a month or so. And then I also do my novel boot camp event every year. And in that, I post videos on my YouTube channel and I also do free critiques. And all of the critiques are on my blog. So if anyone wanted to read them, they would be available. And you can sort of get a good sense of what um, professionals would see in your work. And I think just by reading critiques that have been done on other people's works, even if you don't ever submit your own work for critique, it can still really help you to get a sense of how your first page might be coming across or how your first scene might be coming across. So I have a a very large number of free critiques available on my blog that you can check out if you think that would be helpful for you. Okay. You mentioned your novel bootcamp. So uh, we're, we're recording this at the end of September. So it's just after your novel bootcamp for this year. But am I right in thinking normally you run this in 
in August, is it? Is that correct? Yeah, it, it used to be in July. I think I did it in July for two or three years, and I've done it in August for two or three years. So if people are listening to this in the future, it, it I mean, they just need to check will, anyway and find out when you're doing it next, if you're doing it. Yeah, it should be August 2019. I doubt that I'll move it back to July, but you never okay. know. I, it's hard being one person to run everything. Sometimes things come go unexpectedly and sometimes I have unexpected delays or things like that but it should be August 2019 and I should have more information about that on my website probably in the spring okay and uh, can you just tell us what your website is then and and you refer to your blog how how do people kind of find out a little bit more about you and connect with you yeah my website is ellenbrockediting.com if you search my name in google it's also the first result so if you just search ellenbrock it will come up and then my blog is on there and that's also where the information is about all of my services. So um, I offer a variety of different editing services. I mostly focus on developmental editing and critiques. And I've also just launched a new simpler, cheaper service called a novel assessment where I only look at 10,000 words instead of the full novel. And this is really just an attempt to be able to work with a wider variety of people and writers who maybe can't afford a full edit or who aren't really ready for a full edit. So if you're interested in any of the, my services, you can check that out on my website. And yeah, I, I really, really like working with writers and I've been really, really fortunate to get to a point now and fortunate and unfortunate where it's harder <laughs> for me to work with as many writers as I want to. So I'm hoping that by offering some shorter services, I'll be able to work with more people. But I am at the point now where I... I can only work with maybe one in 10 people that email me. So it's it's really, I feel really, really, really fortunate, but it's really, really hard to to not be able to work with everybody because I really do want to work with everybody. So <laughs> it, it's been hard for me. If you, for a long time, I could work with everybody that came to me, but in the last year or so, it's just not been possible anymore. And is that just because so many people are coming to you and asking for for your, your paid services that you just you just haven't got enough time to to do it or to do it all? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I'm trying to find ways to offer more, you know, shorter services to be able to work with more people. And I'm also trying to screen my clients a little bit more to try to steer people towards free resources where I can if I think that they're not going to benefit as much from paying for editing services. And, and it can be really difficult because you don't want to, I don't want to hurt anyone's feeling and say, Oh mm. no, you're not ready. Mm. But at the same time, I really don't want to take money from somebody who's just not going to going to benefit yet or who just isn't quite there yet. So um, I do have a submission form on my website and I do book about five months in advance. So if you are interested <laughs> in working with me, you can send me a submission on my website and I will try to get back to you as quickly as possible. But definitely check out my YouTube channel. You can get a ton of free advice and um, and my novel bootcamp events. Again, you can get free critiques and free mm. advice. So I try to I try to be available as much as possible. Okay. So I wanna just finish with one <laughs> one final quick question then. If you had thirty to sixty seconds and you wanted to give all of these writers that are listening to this one or two bits of final critical bit advice, you know, the kind of, if you forget everything else, remember this, what would, what would you be saying? 
I think if you're only going to take one thing away from any writing advice ever, I, I still think it should be scene structure. I'm a huge, huge, huge proponent of scene structure. I just think it's super, super important. And you're going to see a huge change in the quality of your of your writing. And mm. I think you as a writer are going to be a lot happier with what you're producing if you follow scene structure. And I guess anybody listening to that who then thinks, oh, but what should I do? one of the best things I can do is to just check out your YouTube channel and, and see what you've got to say about scene structure in the, in the videos that you've put there. Yeah. I ha- yeah. I have a video series on scene structure. I think that I have a blog series on scene structure too, but I think it's, it's older, but yes, I definitely have a video series on scene structure that I try to make as clear as possible. It's really hard to make these things completely clear. It's, it's honestly, it's very tricky. All of the more technical elements of writing the scene structure, story structure, character, character arcs it's all really tricky yeah so i always hope that writers don't ever feel bad if they don't understand it right away or if it doesn't click right away sometimes it just takes the right person saying it in the right way for it to click for you because it is really it is really a pretty tricky subject Mm. well i think my advice to people who who watch your videos as well would be that they are they're they're quite intense and actually sometimes you need to listen carefully and watch them more than once I don't know. It's hard. So certainly with your videos, I find it, I can I can get something out of them, and then if I come back again to the same video and watch it again, they'll get something else out of it because I haven't picked up everything the first time around. Well, good. I'm glad. I sometimes I um I I think I need to make them a little less dense. <laughs> Maybe talk a little slower and and spend more time on it. I I get really excited, and then I think I can <laughs> blow through a ton of information really quickly, and then I think I overwhelm people. It's tricky, isn't it? Because you know you like most of your videos. Practically all of them, I think, are less than 10 minutes, aren't they? So Yeah, for the most part. You could, I guess you could s- spread them out a bit longer, but I'm not sure that would be a good idea. You could make them into smaller bits, perhaps, and maybe that would be good, maybe it wouldn't, I don't know. But if you're going to deal with a subject, you then you have to deal with it. And you can't, sometimes you could, you just can't say everything within a two, two or three minutes, there's, it, because there's more to say than that. Plus, you also put in a lot of um, examples, don't you, which I think is really helpful. And that necessarily takes up a bit more time. Yeah, yeah. This past uh, novel boot camp, I added a lot of examples. That was one of the things that I really wanted to do in previous mm-hmm. years, but it takes a lot of planning in advance to do that. And I had run out of time last year to be able to provide examples. So I was really happy this year to to have enough time in my schedule where I could could, could um, provide a lot of examples. Mm-hmm. But that was something I had to really plan in advance, have enough time to to find all of the examples and then to make like mm-hmm. clear statements and explanations based on them. Well, that is hard work to do, but all writers really appreciate examples which show the point that you're trying to make. It helps It helps to crystallise the understanding, even though it's a lot of hard work to prepare them and to, to get all that stuff done. But I think it's a, it's a great investment. Well, thank you. Okay, well, I think we are done. So, Ellen, thank you so much for your time. It's been a, a real pleasure to talk to you and to, to go you. over. We've covered a huge amount of stuff here, uh, and I really appreciate it all that you all your time and and kind of you sharing all this wisdom with us and I, I guess as well I just want to reiterate that if people are if people should have a lot of questions really in mind having heard all this they can go to your YouTube site and they can go to your website and really find out so much more can't they yeah and then yeah and it's ellenbrockediting.com or just search my name Ellen Brock it'll come up and my YouTube will come up okay right well thanks again Ellen it's been a real, real privilege to talk to you thank you I appreciate okay. it
Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com.